0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Hi, Kalila. Thank you very much for taking time to share your work and experiences with podcast listeners. goal of this podcast is to capture stories of strength at U of M and beyond to inspire others. I've also found storytelling to be a powerful tool to highlight unique ways in which individuals demonstrate their strength when faced with similar challenges. And so interviewing you is an important opportunity, I feel, because I know that you have been doing a lot in this time since COVID hit. To start out, would you mind introducing yourself and describing your path to U of M and your current work?
2: Sure, sure. Thank you Tiffany for inviting me. So, my name is Kalia Borgastin, and I am the founder and president of pack Strategies, which is a consulting firm based here in Detroit. I graduated from the University of Michigan with both my undergrad and graduate degrees. That graduate degree is in sports management and communication. And then my graduate degree is from the Towson College of Architecture and Urban Planning. So I received my master's there in urban planning with a specialization in community and real estate development. And my path to the University of Michigan is actually, when I look back on it, it's just really serendipitous. I grew up in Anderson, Indiana. I didn't know much about the University of Michigan, its reputation, you know, as a, one of the best, if not the best, you know, public universities in the world. You know, growing up in Indiana, I was exposed to, you know, IU, Purdue, Notre Dame, and spent a lot of time, you know, in my youth and high school career visiting those universities. I was a student athlete, and my senior year, my coach, she was a new coach, and she had played basketball at the University of Michigan, and had received a scholarship. And so through her relationship with the women's basketball team, I was exposed to the university, and they recruited me my senior year. And so then Michigan became an option. I mean, I went through the process of you know, to the university, and then really was faced with the decision of do I want to walk on as a student athlete because they didn't have any scholarships that year, or if I wanted to just focus on academics and really experience college you know, not playing basketball, which was really a risk for me. I started playing basketball year-round in the fourth grade, (laughs) being from Indiana. You know, that's not too unusual, and I decided, you know, for the first time really in my young adult life, I wanted to just focus on academics. So I shocked, you know, my family and my friends and said, you know, I'm going to go to the University of Michigan. Um, That was in 1994, so I've been in Michigan ever since. (laughs) I had a lot of plans to leave, but really, I tell people, Michigan as a state has been extremely good to me, so I'm probably one of the few people who didn't know about the university's reputation when I applied. My first choice was actually the General Motors Institute, which was a a co-op college, you know, university where I could, you know, work for General Motors and then go to school. I was always interested in business, and I did not get accepted to GMI I was accepted to the University of Michigan and to Indiana University. And then later, when I came to Ann Arbor, I was very thankful.
1: Interesting too that you had that decision point between continuing with basketball and being on U of M's uh, basketball team with all the perks that that involves and choosing academics. What was like a core decision point in that that made you really focus towards the academics? Well, you know,
2: playing um, basketball, you know, was always a passion of mine. I was fortunate to play with a lot of teammates and against a lot of people in my community who went on to play in the big team. So I played with classmates who went on to Purdue, who went on to Penn State. And so I really understood the sacrifice of a a collegiate athlete. I understood, you know, that grind, the physical grind, the time management skills necessary to really uh, do well academically. And for me, that Sacrifice of that commitment was worthwhile if I had received a scholarship, right? But the fact that they said, "No, oh, we don't really have any scholarships. Maybe if you walk on in the future, we could give you a scholarship." For me, it just didn't it didn't make sense. And I think I was kind of naive in the decision in the sense that I didn't really understand how much I would miss competing, how much I would miss you know that kind of camaraderie with classmates but for me it was just really a financial decision if, if they're not going to help me with tuition why would I join the team <laughs> so you know later on when I got to the university I had a lot of friends male and female who were uh, student athletes and I never questioned my decision from a kind of sacrifice standpoint I saw the time and the sacrifice that went into their decision. It would have been nice to have financial support, of course, with a scholarship, but I, I was happy with my decision, although over the years, I, I realized I missed competition.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about the time commitment. I ran track and cross-country in college, and it was mm-hmm. long hours, and you were wiser than I was. Um, I didn't have a scholarship and still decided to do it. Looking back, I'm mm-hmm. like, was that really a smart decision? You sound much savvier. <laughs> I'm at the same age that I was. I was just happy to get out of my small town. (laughs) Yeah, so what you didn't mention is your work around Keep Sharing the Mic Detroit. Would you mind talking a little bit about that work you've got going on and what the intent is? Sure. So this,
2: I think, on June 10th, the National Initiative, which is Share the Mic Now, launched there were a few you know celebrity women who decided to really come together to create a campaign where White celebrities, for the most part, would share their platform with Black women who were doing, you know, really amazing work in the effort to really center the voices of Black women in, you know, the social media conversation around, you know, racial racial justice and police brutality. And so I was up late one night around 4 o'clock in the morning and decided, you know, I wonder if there are you know, women in Detroit who would like to do this. You know, they created the national platform and then told women really all across the world, yours, take it, you know, run with it. So I put a call out around 4.30 in the morning one night to see if there are white women in particular who wanted to engage in authentic conversation with black women in Detroit. And, Within about two weeks, I received requests and inquiries from about fifty-six women, (laughs) and I was completely overwhelmed because I didn't think that people would really be interested. I didn't know how the national campaign had really been picked up. You know, there are people like you know Senator Elizabeth Warren who participated, Hillary Swank, Julia Roberts, Kourtney Kardashian, who really gave up their platform, and there was around. 300 million followers collectively, right, that they had. And so, you know, here locally, right, I knew we don't really have, you know, social women with those large platforms, but I felt it was still an opportunity that could be explored. So... Over the past couple of weeks, I've been working with a small team. There are women who reached out who said that they would love to volunteer to help pull this off. And so we've been matching women over the region actually with one another based on their interests, their sectors, and just what we've come to know about them through the process. And we'll be recording those conversations over the next few weeks and then launching our local campaign to run from August. 10th through August 14th of 2020. So it's share the mic now, um, Detroit. And you know, I'm really excited. I think, you know, to be to be honest, you know, in this kind of era of the president and everything we have been experiencing politically, I I had really gone within myself, I think, since the election. I had some very challenging interactions and conversations with white women post the election. And was just in a space where, you know, I wasn't really wanting to engage anymore. Felt like people have to really be at a place where they've done some of their own work before they really engage. And in the course of a month, I had a number of women throughout the course of my life reach out to me. Oh, that's of all teammates, co-workers, friends of the family who were acknowledging maybe their, their past missteps and really saying, you know, Korea, I want to be better. I want to do better. I want to be able to engage in these conversations and be a better advocate and ally. So I think it was like the timing for me, it was like I had heard about this national campaign, you know, had some personal experiences that were causing me to come out of that shell a little bit and really felt like it was time to center the voices of black women in a lot of the conversation.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you mentioned how since the election you've kind of been growing and reflecting and figuring out your next steps. What makes now different for these conversations around identity and experiences around identity and racism? Why is now the time for that?
2: Well, you know, my husband likes to say, we now see what the real pandemic is. You know, I think, you know, the things that have happened over the course of the summer and the spring are not new, right? We here in America had years, hundreds of years of oppression, even before, you know, slavery. You know, the taking of land, you know, people of color suffering from colonialism, right? So that's the part of our collective history. But I think it was something about the pandemic, right? Being in the house, not being able to really dull your senses, right? Through entertainment or eating out, that the murder of George Floyd, as well as the murder of Breonna Taylor, I think, captured the public consciousness in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think for the women who reached out to me personally, it was a moment that they could no longer hide from, right, that they could no longer, you know, close their eyes to because we were dealing with um, a time when we were forced to be alone, right? We were focused Or really surviving. so to see that happen during a time where collectively we were all going through something very similar and touting like we're all in this together, it became abundantly clear that we are not in this together, right? And that there are different outcomes for people based on their race and their gender. And so for me personally, I felt that the killing of Breonna Taylor didn't get as much publicity you know i was reminding people even within the black community right that there was a young lady who lost her life as well and that this isn't just about black men dying this is also a black, about black women and if you look at the statistics right you can you can see that black women also suffer disproportionate amount of physical and sexual violence when in police custody and then i was shocked because um People said, "Oh, Kalia, you are. Um, a, this is a distraction, right?" So some people said, "You know, I don't understand when we even talk about men, we mean women too." So I was like, "Well, then why can't we just say people, right, black mm-hmm. people?" <laughs> you know, I was. You know, people would ask, like, "Well, what do you mean when you say all black lives matter, Kalia?" But I would say. That's exactly what I mean, right? Whether you're trans, whether you're bi, whether you're queer, however you identify, right? Your life matters in the fight for liberation and for freedom, to me, includes everyone. So I was shocked when people didn't know how to center or didn't even know how to include, right? those other identities in the conversation about police brutality. And my decision was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, leverage this national platform and I'm going to ask black women to step up also. Uh, There was a lot of black women who participated in the national campaign as well. Julie Wilson who uh, worked at Essence Magazine and Tarana Burke who started the Me Too movement and so I really leveraged that and said to other black women locally "Look, we can have a platform that we create where we talk about our experiences with both racism and sexism. And I will say there were a lot of black women who were doubtful and still to this day remain doubtful and have concerns about will this be a safe space for me Leah, how can you ensure that this is a safe space will these conversations turn into you know us helping white women in their journeys when we have to deal with, like, with white women peers? well you know so i uh, one had to really think hard about what it means to create safe spaces for other women in particular, black women. But I also had to recognize that, you know, people were trusting me with, you know, their voice. And a lot of women said, I'm only doing this because you're asking me, and I trust your leadership. I'm going to trust your direction." But I have reservations about this, and so I hold that trust very dear, and I, and I take it very seriously. And um, you know, through conversations with other women who participated. In the campaign, especially in Chicago, I see how through the conversation guide and some of the guidelines, they start to really ensure, first and foremost, that the Black women are com- are comfortable with the questioning. They're comfortable with the direction before they ever take, right, in the same way that you kind of prepped me for this. So, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to see the stories, you know, that women women share and the truths that come out of the conversations and then we'll just see where it goes from there a few people have asked well, you know what are your plans and I'm like just to create a space for courageous and honest conversation. so for, for now that's it. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Kalila, just knowing you, I have a feeling that you went above and beyond what the national guidelines were for creating trusting spaces. What do you think were some of your key strategies for creating a space that invited both uh, white and black women to the conversation in a way that they were comfortable? We often hear about how much responsibility it is on minorities and marginalized groups to provide education to other groups and that that gets exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you're aware of that and wanted to be respectful of those who are participating.
2: I think, you know, first and foremost, I have always seen myself as a bridge builder. But somewhere along the lines, I think that part of my identity just got pushed to the back. And so I recognize through this campaign locally, I'm still that's still very much a part of who I am. And so I took the role of really trying to match women very seriously and I had some help in doing that to make sure that at least at some level, there was some commonality. That is, they really explored the conversation and we will have pre-meetings with everyone that they would see that there's some areas in which they, they share some same experiences or same interests or same career path. So I think first and foremost, that's really important. But I think the other thing was really being very transparent about the purpose you know, with everyone. And so I clearly stated, right, that this is about centering the experiences of Black women. You know, that if you commit to this process, right, this is, this is what you're committing to. That we are going to prioritize the safety, right, of Black women in this experience. And so far, no one has offered that, right? And then to operationalize that, by ensuring that Black women can decide what areas they'd like to discuss, what areas they wouldn't like to discuss, making sure that the questions have been vetted by the Black women, and then ultimately, after we record, giving everybody the opportunity to review what's been recorded. I had a a Black woman that I I know and I trust, and I've worked with for years, and she said to me, Kalia, once these conversations are shared, we know especially here to me we know that there could be repercussions personal and professional repercussions for black women depending on what they say and depending on how they show up and so you have to give black women especially an opportunity to review what's recorded to make sure they're comfortable with this before it's shared publicly right because even though you know, Detroit is a major city in the region, we, we know has millions of people, it's still very small. And, you know, I had to take that feedback. Um, that wasn't the original intent, but I took that feedback and I said, okay, you know, we'll allow everyone to have an opportunity to review you know the information. So I'm really excited, you know, about the opportunity for people to really come together to be courageous. When I moved to Detroit in 2008, this was the type of work that I wanted to do. And I was disappointed because I thought, oh, based on Detroit history, I was just out of grad school, had read all these books and I thought, oh, people in Detroit are ready to have these conversations. (laughs) (laughs) And some people weren't, but for the most part, people were not. Um, And so I also had to recognize that Um, My experience growing up in Indiana was different from how people grew up here in Michigan, although racism and race was very much a part of the Midwestern experience was different in how it was operationalized. Growing up in Indiana, people in my life were very clear about their boundaries when it came to people of other races. So all throughout my life in Indiana, I would have girlfriends who would say, Yeah, my parents are fine with us having a relationship at school, but you can't come to my birthday party at my home or my parents are fine, you know, in high school, middle school, it got to be, oh, my parents are fine with me and you being friends, so I can never date interracially, right? So growing up in Indiana, people were very clear. Like, this is where I stand. you know, basketball games. Sometimes you would go into small communities, and people would, in the 90s, be comfortable saying the N-word. So it was very open. Racism was almost like Southern, and, and how it was sense. It was very open. It was very clear. A lot came from Michigan. It was more of the Midwestern nice that a lot of people talked about. And so I didn't understand that some of the views or values were still as entrenched, but they were private. You know, people knew enough not to really let their feelings be known publicly, um, but they would move in the exact same way, perhaps privately.
1: Hmm. Which do you think was harder to operate under?
2: Definitely Michigan, the Midwestern Knife. Sometimes I I refer to it, um, especially in interactions sometimes with white women, and I've heard other women of color talk about this, like the Midwestern Knife, kind of like the underlying passive aggressiveness. So I refer to that as that 5,000 paper code, where it's, you know, small microaggressions that in the moment seem really um, benign but over time, really are hurtful. And if we're honest, right, exact a level of kind of emotional um, and mental violence a lot of times against women of color in professional settings, especially.
1: Yeah, I'm really hoping that the energy right now about creating systemic change, that we're able to carry this forward past the pandemic and work that continues well beyond when we're alive, that change Mm -hmm. continues. What do you think we can do now to ensure that systems continue to be challenged beyond this unique point in time?
2: I think the focus really has to be on systemic policy change. It's very interesting. I was engaged in a Facebook conversation over the weekend where here in Detroit, you know, these pictures went viral of a young black woman being put in a chokehold during one of the protests. And I think up until that point, right, a lot of the conversation locally was, you know, Detroit is different. We have a black police chief. We have... You know, a great amount of black police officers, we don't have the same problems as other cities. And then these pictures, right, started going viral. You know, the police officers driving into a crowd of protesters. And so, so one of my Facebook friends who is a former police officer said, as long as, right, the chokehold is listed um, as a acceptable form of use or police interaction, right? We we won't be able to change what is happening in our community. And publicly we've had elected officials say, right, we we don't support the use of this, but, right? so he was saying, don't focus on the performative measures, right? Don't focus on a lot of the things that are being said. Focus squarely on whether or not this policy gets changed or rescinded and i think to your point we now see companies you know making Juneteenth a holiday right we now see as being changed and a lot of things that you know people have asked for for years for decades but that doesn't now change the need for the policy still to be changed um and so that's really what i think will make that last make this moment lasting, cause whether or not we like them or not, cause to defund the police and to reduce the amount of resources that have gone into police departments and then take those resources and invest them into communities that create lasting change for generations to come, right? Not just saying, you know, defund the police or, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, but really asking in a way. Um, that your where your actions and your policies support that is what's important.
1: Mm-hmm. How do we hold folks accountable for those changes? What can we mm-hmm. do to kind of hold those that we vote into office accountable and regularly check in and make it a mandatory aspect of their work to listen?
2: Yeah, I think there has to be more on the, like, the protest side or the progressive side. I do you think there has to be more partnerships. You know, I have a good girlfriend who is in Louisville. She's a community activist, and she was just talking to me about, like, the inside and the outside game, right? Mm -hmm. To to get to the point where their city council decided to ban no knock warrants, right? It took everybody. It took the people who are out there protesting. It took the policy walk, right? It took the people with relationships, and I think sometimes we can't even get to the place where we hold elected officials accountable because there's sometimes infighting, right, between even people on the progressive side where it's like, well, I'm more authentic than you are, <laughs> and, and that ends up diluting, right, the work, and so she and I was just talking about the need to realize that everyone has a position that they play in the movement and to honor everyone's position and to their, honor their contributions, and yes, have to ensure there's an alignment of values and that you're working to the same end, but not to devalue what others are bringing to the table. And I think if we can get to that point, right, then you are much more strategic in how you hold people accountable. You know, you're able to do the policy analysis, you're able to look at the voting record, and you're able to get people to show up. Sometimes we may have one or two of those, but we don't have it all coming together um, like a machine. And unfortunately, there are other machines out there (laughs) that are well-oiled and that know how to work together for their own common good, even if they disagree.
1: When you think about who you want to partner with and who you want to be allies with, like what are the types of things that you're thinking about or making sure that you're assessing before engaging heavily in in a partnership?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the big things and this is a holdover from my time as an athlete is really an understanding of how people use teams and they use the concept of teams and so I think we all have been in you know situations where someone is talking about the team <laughs> but it's only once the team analogy only works like you're the, the person who's sacrificing or you're the person who's staying late or you're the person that's having to do the extra work um, but they're not necessarily making the sacrifices as well so earlier on in my career i had a lot of examples like that especially with supervisors you know where they would talk about the team, the team, the team, right, to quote both, both um, but then they wouldn't be found, right, mm-hmm. when things got tough, or they wouldn't, you know, back me up, or I couldn't go to them for support or guidance. And so earlier in my career, I realized, wow, um, I need to pay attention to how people really show whether or not they are a part of, of the team and how they treat me as a teammate. Because I really do believe in servant leadership and the people who are quote unquote at the top sacrificing as well. I do believe in mutual accountability. So, in a lot of times when I uh, launched my consulting company, really thinking about the values of my company, and the first one is collaboration. I really believe that one of the most innovative things that we can do now is to collaborate deeply. To, to work together in new ways. Um, I really value integrity. And for me, that's just like, you know, being honest, um, being transparent. And that I think sometimes people confuse honesty with being curt or being mean, you know, but it's like being honest and love, um, you know, even when it's unpopular, right? Speaking even when your voice is shaking about... Um, you know, your feelings or things that need to change. change. You know, I I like working with people who are innovative, who are trying to think about new ways to solve old problems or new ways to solve new problems, right? It's like, let's figure out a new way to work together. And of course, for me, equity is always, Center, you know, my parents were. My mom was a public school teacher for thirty years. My father was, um, you know, activist in our community and just a concerned citizen. And so I just always grew up with a strong sense of justice, of caring for and being concerned for people with beliefs. And that's something that is just is just really central to who I am. So, and it's not that you know people have to have a life because <laughs> none of us are perfect, no organization is perfect, but at least being on your journey, you know, toward realizing some of these ideals and values.
1: Now, I probably don't need to point this out to you, but you created the Keep Sharing the Mic Detroit while also running your consulting business, being a mother, being a partner, being a daughter. What are you doing to care for yourself through all of this?
2: Well, this weekend I slept. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, you know, I, you know, my my partner laughed, my mother laughed. I've had a few people say... So, Kalia, when are you finding the time to do this? And I've been telling them at night, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, after the kids go to sleep, um, you know, after the house is quiet, it's nothing for me to stay up until four o'clock in the morning, you know, trying to finish project. And you know, I had to be gracious toward myself. You know, I started working out again. I was uh, working out with a, a personal trainer before the pandemic, and. I just kind of gotten off track, but, you know, we started up and, you know, sometimes I'll oversleep or I can't make it and i feel so guilty, right? And then I had to just say, like, we are just staying up till 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, like right? Being able to operate on three hours of sleep, get up, you know, work out and then go on about your day is kind of unrealistic. So for me, self-care usually always starts with me um, being gentle and forgiving with myself about the things that i feel like i should have accomplished but didn't but you know i'm i'm blessed and i think you know i've just been given just an inordinate amount of passion and i have to remind myself to rest but i i do like to go after those things i'm really grateful to to you and to cw for being my first official consulting client So, you know, it was always a dream of mine to launch my consulting practice. And so, you know, when you have a dream, a lot of times you think about, you know, the glory or the feeling that you get from realizing that dream. You don't always think about the hard work. So I was telling someone recently, like, even if you have a dream, it's still going to require hard work to realize it. And, but it feels good, right? Because it's your dream. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. yours. But it's it's what was in your heart to do.
1: I prefer to think of you as a change agent because you're willing to take on the hard work oh, okay. that other people don't. And I think we made out on the better end of the deal having you as a consultant. We so appreciate getting <laughs> to work with you. You're amazing. A few final questions here. What are you most mm-hmm. proud of accomplishing over the past five months?
2: I would say just creating a safe space for my family. You know, it's the the pandemic. And I share this with you, you know, my partner had quarantine, as this all started, my daughter was shell-shocked. She loved school. She's an extrovert. You know, we had to figure out what our normal was, and we were getting our kitchen renovated. So that had to stop <laughs> when we had to shelter in place. was like, not only were we Dream place and homeschooling and working, we were doing it all without a kitchen. Oh, wow. And so, so just most proud of, you know, my ability to kind of stay the course and to be honest and transparent um, about the challenges I was experiencing, but ultimately really carve out um, a new normal where everyone in our family felt like they could obtain a piece of joy like that that was my my conversation and with all of them it's like everybody has to go after their own joy in their situation people all across the world are having to adjust yes we're all disappointed yes I had a lot of fear someone who has an ongoing health condition you know yes we're fearful but we have to fight for our joy whatever that is day after day and I feel like we have done that in small ways, in big ways, and um, in in ways that really I would say have healed, have been healing for our family. You know, my daughter um, the year before last talked about just feeling like she was not getting an opportunity to spend enough time with us as her parents. You know, she. Has a lot of extracurricular activities herself, (laughs) coupled with our schedules. And so it was a theme for about a year. You know, I, I really want to spend more time with my parents. And so, you know, I told her it didn't come the way we wanted, but we are spending more time together as a family. You know, we're very blessed that no one in our family has, you know, contracted the virus. We haven't lost any close family members gainfully employed we still have health insurance and so I you know like to reinforce that with her but you know I'm proud of that I'm proud that I have been able to somehow by nick or crook build some infrastructure for my business <laughs> so it's, it's you know slow but you know being able to delegate some things you know I have some individuals now who are helping me you know set up My bookkeeping and transitioning to, you know, glide to QuickBooks and a a bookkeeping platform, you know, filing taxes for the first time as a business owner, you know, creating a new website. So still through the midst of a lot of uncertainty, still being able to chug along and and get some things done.
1: A lot of us are binge-watching different things or books, TV shows, podcasts. Do you have any media or TV shows or anything else that you'd recommend others?
2: Ooh, um, I don't know if I would recommend them, but I have to binge-watch <laughs> some things. So I was binge-watching Little Fires Everywhere, which is based off of a book, and I think it's on Hulu, and it explores, you know, race and gender dynamics in Ohio through a relationship with a white woman and a black woman. I felt like, you know, that it starred Carrie uh, Washington and Reese Witherspoon. And so they talked a lot about or those dynamics between um, between women. Um, I think with podcasts, I really love Amanda Seals and her comedy and she was uh, of course on The Real um, and I just, I like the way in which she talks about, you know, politics and racial justice in a way that's just very accessible. And so I will listen to her podcast uh, it's called a small doses. And so it can be like small doses on, you know, the side effects of black motherhood, for example. Um, she's really funny. I don't, um, you know, get to read as much as I would. I do have a stack of books, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I have in the queue. So, of course, um, I'm sure everyone has either heard of by now or possibly read a portion of Life's Fragility, um, by Robin D'Angelo, which is a really popular book right now. So, Yeah, I am very much a pop culture enthusiast, so I read a lot of blog posts and listen to a lot of podcasts,
1: too. Do you have an inspirational thought or quote to leave with? Well, I think for, um,
2: you know, women in particular, you know, however they define their womanhood, I think it's very important to take risks and those risks can sometimes be calculated, sometimes they're just a jump, but I think it's very important for women to trust themselves, to trust their intuition, their skills, you know, to go after um, the things that are in their heart to do. And I think the research shows that, you know, women, whether they're, they're, you know, black, white, or identify in a number of different ways. You know, we, one, usually underestimate our experience and a lot of times don't go after professional experiences where our male counterparts will. I think the research also shows that women are more risk averse than their male counterparts. So I've been thinking a lot about that, especially as it comes to raising daughters and really instilling the, the belief in them that they can take a risk and that either their risk will pay off or you're strong enough to weather, right, the mistake if the risk doesn't pay off in the way that you expect. And so I think that's my inspirational, you know, thought for women: take the risk, you'll be better for it.
1: I'll have to remember that. It gets harder by the day as like exhaustion sets in more and more. Khalila, thank you so much for participating and for sharing your time with me. I'm really appreciative.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.